Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 151. My name is Tyler. Of course you have Pratik and Nick here as well. And before we dive into all of the really hot news this week, we got the House Speaker, everything going on in Israel and Palestine. Please follow, please share the podcast. Really, really do appreciate that. But with that said, we're going to be jumping right into it. Pratik, what's going on? Okay, so MAGA murders McCarthy, igniting second civil war. So on Tuesday, the House took a historic step, voting 216 to 210 to remove House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a California Republican, from his position. This surprising move followed McCarthy's last-minute deal with House Democrats to avert a government shutdown. In a dramatic turn of events, the House made history by voting 216 to 210 to remove House Speaker Kevin McCarthy following his 11th hour deal with House Democrats to avoid the government shutdown. This surprising move was instigated by Republican Representative Matt Gates and 11 other MAGA House members who pushed for a vote to vacate the Speaker's office, a unique event in U.S. history. With the Speaker's seat vacant, Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina was appointed as Speaker pro temp, granting him temporary authority until a new Speaker is chosen. Amidst the political turmoil, the Republican Party faces a pivotal decision to select a new House Speaker. Two prominent contenders have emerged, Jim Jordan, the Texas, Texas Freedom Caucus Chair, and Steve Scalise, the Louisiana House Majority Leader. Former President Donald Trump, after initially considering becoming Speaker himself, endorsed Jim Jordan via Truth Social, saying he will be a great Speaker of the House and has my complete and total endorsement. There have been some memes and opinion stories surfacing of Trump entering the speaker race, but with the endorsement, it's most likely hearsay. The race is further complicated by third contender Kevin Hearn, chair of the Republican Study Committee, splitting votes. Scalise, a favorite among establishment Republicans, faces comparisons to McCarthy, while Jordan's potential speakership offers unity within the MAGA wing but risks alienating others. Scalise has the role of a majority has the role of has has held the role of Majority Whip under Paul Ryan and currently serves as the number two to McCarthy as House Majority Leader, or currently served, I should say. Scalise has been undergoing cancer treatment concurrently while serving in the House after being diagnosed with blood cancer. The contest will most likely unfold next Wednesday, with Republicans holding the power to choose. The outcome remains uncertain if either can get 218 votes, especially with Democrats voting for their leader, Hakeem Jeffries, as his precedent. Currently, the split is 221 Republicans and 212 Democrats, so only three Republicans can defect. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on the speaker extravaganza? Yes, the extravaganza. I think we should start from the beginning. So, the whole the fact that this happened, this is the first time in American history this has ever happened. And it happened because in order to get Kevin McCarthy elected initially, they had to concede some things, one of them being that you only needed a simple majority to actually remove the House Speaker, which is very easy to do if you can have if, if your opposition, in this case the Democrats, um, are, are basically aligned with each other and that they're going to vote as a block. And you'll, if that's the case, you only need a handful of Republicans to actually dissent to flip this thing over. There is no way... Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans didn't expect this to happen. You have over 200 Republican congressmen and women. Um, really, you think they're all going to just fall in line and go with what they're told? Given what we know about, you know, these Matt Gates type figures, absolutely not. So 
I saw this coming from a mile away. I hope Kevin McCarthy saw this coming from a mile away. You can't concede like something like that and expect to stay in office. How can you? You don't operate in good faith in politics. That's just not how things work, at least anymore. And that's what happened here. So the fact that this happened is pretty funny, but it was expected, in my opinion. Nick, do you have any uh, co- comments or thoughts before we go to critique? Well, sure. I mean, the one thing that I've sort of heard is that Matt Gates is a total moron. And the reason for that is who is sort of, if, if you're voting someone out, right? You usually pick someone else to replace them, right? Let's say you're looking at the CEO of a big company or a prominent board member, and you want to say, you know, so-and-so, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, whoever is bad for the company, we want to kick them out. You need to come up with a replacement person, right? And they had no replacement person. If anything, you know, Jordan, Scalise, others, they voted for McCarthy. So the very people who they're going to replace him with were in favor of him still staying as the leadership. So it's just a very strange dynamic. And for Mac, I I just don't get, you know, I I get what you're saying where they didn't get their way. They threw a tantrum. They kicked him out. But at the end of the day, like, what are they hoping to actually accomplish agenda wise that they're going to get different from the person who is already in if all the people supporting him are the ones in line to be the next speaker? Well, some people love attention, and Matt Gates loves attention, and their goal was not to actually create a more stable system with a better leader. It was to smash the system. Their intent here is to blow open what is the Republican Party and just sow chaos, because they think that's how they reform the party. It, it's not about coming to, to to introduce some other figure who's going to lead, lead them to the promised land. No, it's about sowing chaos within the Republican Party and the Republican wing, and Matt Gates, as they were talking about all the time during these new, newscasts, was fundraising during this. He was sending out fundraising emails. He has all this attention nationwide. He's like, I'm not taking money from any PACs, anyone. I'm only taking money from the people because they're the ones who I represent. And he was able to have the pulpit for a little bit and get all that attention. And that's, at the end of the day, we have a lot of narcissists in office. He's just one of them and he definitely took advantage. But well, Pratik, do you agree with that? Yeah. I agree more with Nick on this, but I have a lot of opinions on this. So I talked about this two episodes ago where I'm like the house MAGA people are the biggest idiots on stage. Like I don't understand their agenda. If your goal as MAGA is that you want to make take the party forward and create a more um, create a party that fights for the ideals of their voters and fights for what their voters are, you know, fighting for. Then in the end of the day, you also have to realize that the people that vote half of the people that vote and most of the people that will vote for you are all voting party line. They don't care about whether what you believe. They don't really care about who you are. Half the people may not even know who, what your name is. Like I was talking about this. Patrick McHenry is my representative from Statesville, Mooresville area. I didn't really know who he was. I know I'd seen him a few times, but like I obviously like one at one point I was trying to see whose office I can work in. So I probably did come across him. His office was really hard to reach, even though they were my representative. But it's like it was funny because I saw him on TV. I'm like, I know this guy. I know this guy. I know this guy. And it's like, yeah, he's my rep. My point with that whole story is I'm sure I voted for this guy because he was a Republican. I didn't know much about him, but I voted for him because his name, the name word after his name was Republican. If it had some other word, let's say it had Democrat or Libertarian or Independent or anything like that, Green Party, I wouldn't have voted for him because I wouldn't have, I would have not not voted for my party. That's how 80 to 90% of the people in our country vote. So the reason I'm saying it in that context is 
that's the first priority you have as a representative or as a politician is you have to, you know, support whatever your people want that voted for you. And the people that voted for you voted for you because of your party, not because your name is Matt Gates. And my point with all this stuff too, is that you can also argue that these MAGA people, their agenda is that they should support whatever Donald Trump supports because they're the loyal Trump supporters. Hence, that's how they all came from that make America great again hat that you see all the time. The thing about that though, is that with those MAGA people, you would assume that because they're supporting Trump, they would want Trump to win. And for Trump to win, he has to have legislative wins. And the way you have legislative wins is if your party doesn't all erupt into chaos and have a civil war within themselves, by you basically overthrowing the speaker of choice that Trump literally hand-selected. Now, all of that stuff all fits into that box where it's like, Democrats are smart. Democrats are going to take this as a win. All Democrats have to say is that, look at these idiots. They can't even choose their own leader. They may not have enough votes to select their own guy because they got three idiots running for this position. One who's a serial loser called Jim Jordan that loses every single speaker election because he's the face of the Freedom Caucus, but half the Freedom Caucus just supports whatever Trump wants. Hence, Kevin McCarthy got selected. And then you got Steve Scalise, who they're going to be like, all he is, is another Kevin McCarthy because he was just the second in line. If Kevin McCarthy died, Steve Scalise would have become the speaker. So then you have those two. Then you got this other random dude called Kevin Hearn that thinks he matters, but he doesn't. So weird context is, is that in some cases, Tyler's right. These people want notoriety. Um, I've always said this, people in the Senate, like Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, those people are a bunch of loser idiots because in the end of the day, those people are the reason that their party isn't able to accomplish anything. And if your party has a very low approval rate, and if your party is not able to accomplish as much, you will probably lose the next go around. That's usually what happens. If your party doesn't accomplish anything, you will lose. And if your party has any negative news coverage or PR coverage, you'll probably lose. This is def this this falls into that same thing. And the irony about these MAGA people is that they're the right wing end of the party. They were more right wing than the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus were. So their literally plan, their literal plan should be let's vote with the Republicans. But instead, they voted with the Democrats to overthrow their speaker, which caused more chaos because now they're gonna be speakerless and there's no clear front runner. Here's the thing: they love the chaos, but let's also, you know, let's let's talk about why, why Gates said he did it. Like, I'm not going to say these are real reasons, but this is what he said. He says, we're spending too much money. We have all this debt. Avoiding this partial government shutdown was like a, a huge deal. But he said that we can't just keep raising the debt limit, which is a serious concern by people. He said, we can't just keep voting on omnibus bills. We need to vote on single pieces of legislation as they come by. It's the only way we're actually going to be able to get things done. He, so he, he was coming out and saying some stuff that, you know, kind of makes sense, but he would tag that with, you know, I, this wing of the Republican Party is right. We need to smash the system. We need to change the complete direction of the party. For me, I just think these guys are lunatics. They're not the kind of guys to fall in line. But also, if you don't believe in the direction of the party, should you fall in line? And I, I guess the answer is no, which why, to me, it comes back to when Kevin McCarthy got elected to concede to just a simple majority vote to oust the speaker is stupid. It's ridiculous. It's never existed in American history. And that's the reason this entire thing happened in the first place and i think the problem is that i keep saying is that what's their solution 
you can have all these ideas. And as Nick said, this guy came in with this idea that let's smash this thing. Let's let's remove these things. But these guys are actual morons. Pratik, what's the goal of the Joker? The, the, the Joker wants to see the world burn. And honestly, that's kind of what these guys want to do. They want to tear down what is the status quo of the Republican Party. I don't even think they're going to be successful. But this seems to be the idea here because there's not much rational reason to do it otherwise. Like even the Matt Gates, like he yeah. might actually get ousted from Congress. If they get a two-third vote, they, they kick him out of the, the caucus or whatever. Uh, and, and then he's kind of out of the party. So they won't do that. But th- this, is a, this is a possibility. I think the problem... The problem is it all surrounds the Republican Party. I think the problem with the Republican Party is that we we actually need somebody like Mitch McConnell in the House. For all it's worth, Mitch McConnell gets all these right-wing nuts to all support whatever the Republican cause is because he explains to them that if you don't support what the Republican cause is, then the Democrats win. And if the Democrats win, your existence is pointless. That's literally what these people in the House need to understand. The problem is, is that maybe Kevin McCarthy wasn't a very good leader. Like, you've had, you have people that have led in the past that were able to get things done and get things accomplished despite having people within their House defect. This is people like Nancy Pelosi. Even for all it's worth, John Boehner and Paul Ryan were actually effective in their own way in getting stuff done. Paul Ryan just had his beef with Trump, which led to his, um, you know, being removed. But even then, before Trump existed, Paul Ryan was able to consolidate and unite the party. Kevin McCarthy's problem was is that he literally was Trump's choice. There's no other establishment person that Trump really liked apart from Kevin McCarthy. And if Kevin McCarthy can't do it, the problem is is that not nobody can do it because Jim Jordan may be an option, but Jim Jordan is a loser. He is actually a loser. The guy runs for speaker every <laughs> single election and loses. No, no, but the reason I say that They're is freaking about losers, man. Speaker, speaker elections happen every two years, right? So they run for the speaker position. As soon as like, you know, the Republicans or Democrats control majority, generally speaking, the people that run for speaker, um, they're already decided by their party that this is the guy that's going to win or this is the girl that's going to win. And most of these people live, live on forever. Nancy Pelosi was the speaker of the House for Democrats for ages. The only reason they got this Hakeem Jeffries guy running now is they're like, man, Nancy Pelosi's like 84. I don't know if she could be speaker again. Let's have this other dude take her place. Then same context with the Republicans. Obviously with the Republicans, John Boehner, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, we had three. But in general, like you look at the Senate, Paul, uh, what is this? Mitch McConnell's been there forever. And the reason is, is that these people are able to consolidate the parties. I feel that if you are going to run for one of these positions, if you are not capable enough to win, you probably shouldn't run that many times because it actually makes you look like an idiot. If you can't win one time, two times, three times, four times, then by the fifth time, you should probably learn, maybe I'm not going to win. That's Jim Jordan's problem. And I think Trump actually by endorsing Jim Jordan made the waters even more muddy because Steve Scalise would have probably been the decided choice because around 180 to 190 Republicans will consolidate behind Steve Scalise because he is the second in line to Kevin McCarthy. He's been through all the party leadership positions. He went from being a majority whip to being a minority whip to being the House minority leader to the House majority leader. He's had all the positions. And I think because he's had all the positions, it he would be the choice of, you know, of the majority of the people that are in the House, that are in the Republicans. Now, if Donald Trump was to come out and just support Steve Scalise, he may have alienated these 15 idiots that don't really know what they're doing anyway. 
but it would have made it simpler for them to just consolidate behind around them to just get a majority. But now because Donald Trump decided to, you know, do be Donald Trump and be like, all right, let's support Jim Jordan after considering that he may run because he was going to split it up even more. So you really can't get a speaker. Now you're at that point where you're like, okay, well, Jim Jordan may get 30 votes. Steve Scalise is going to get 190 votes. What is going to happen? And the problem is, is that this may be the first time that Republicans may not be able to have a speaker despite having a majority because we have 15 people that are pointless Republicans. And that's scary to me. Like if then that happens, you're like, Democrats should win the election because this kind of stuff actually makes our party look really bad. Like here's a lot of things that make one party or another party look really bad and it's based on whatever's going on at the time. But I do think that these kind of things are what makes independents and moderate people probably feel like, man, this party really doesn't have their crap together. They can't even choose a leader among themselves. Why should I vote for their leader? Because their leaders seem kind of pointless. Let's just vote for the other side because everybody is a Democrat and they all follow the same XYZ opinions. Do you, do you think that's the case, Nick? I don't know if that would be the case. I think it's more so, you know, my, my classic answer of, I think that what'll happen is, you know, for example, in Pratik's example, if you heavily favor one side over the other side, right, and your side is in total chaos, the odds are you're not going to vote for the other team. You're just going to stay home and not vote for your own people. So I think that's ultimately where that's it comes fair. to play, where all the disorder, all the chaos just ends up, you know, unmotivating people and they just kind of sit there and don't do anything so i think that's the major risk instead of you know <laughs> to critique's point where it's like oh we can't get our act together oh, let's just <laughs> let's just vote for these other people you know at least they can choose someone I, I don't know if that's how that works yeah but also trump i i feel like trump he kind of he kind of teased that he would be the speaker. I think it was just to get attention. Trump loves attention. He wants Dude, to be the center does. of attention. Anytime there's a big event and he can put his name in there, he's going to do it. But he basically said this time, I actually would, you know, consider myself if there is a gridlock. If they if they can't get their votes together, I'm your guy. Which would you be a bigger man, gridlock. If the end of this <laughs> is Trump is the speaker of the house and he's not even in office, it's just the most ridiculous thing ever. But hey, this is American politics in 2023. Dude. You but never know see, what's gonna happen. I would argue that that may be better to consolidate the party behind a vote for Trump. This is weird stuff here, but I do think one thing this. But you just clear, said they should speaker should yeah. exist for a while. So if he's only guaranteed basically to be there for a little while, that's not necessarily the most productive thing. I think. Thing. I think the problem is you have to understand how voters think. Voters are gonna look at this as like, man, these people are idiots. If in that case, Democrats just end up getting a speaker of the house, Republicans are just gonna look like morons. But at the same time, Donald Trump really needs to think about certain things he does because he's the clear front runner to win the election. Like if Donald Trump runs, he will probably win and he will definitely win the Republican primary because these all these other people just look like clowns on stage every time they debate. So with that, like Donald Trump should think about these things. Maybe these kind of things do matter. What he says does matter because if these MAGA people are Trump's people, it actually may piss off other Republicans that may vote because he all, all in the end you need to do is Trump needs to get as many Republicans that will vote for him to vote for him and by Biden needs to get as many Democrats that will vote for him to vote for him. And that's the end of the day. That's the bottom line. It's all about winning. So if it's all about winning, Trump should think about what is going to help me win. 
And if little things like this happen because you have a bunch of devotees of yourself that don't have an agenda or plan of their own and they decide, let's just create chaos and create, like, let's just throw out everything the Republican Party has, then it's not going to help you. It may help Matt Gates win re-election. It may help, you know, people like Nick's favorite person. What's her name? Um, MTG. It might help MTG win her election, but it may not help Trump win the election. And all that really matters is if Trump wins the election, Republicans win the election. And if Trump loses, most likely the Republicans will lose. And that's all that matters. In the Trump election. is politics. And when AI gets good enough, we're going to have a permanent uh, Trump president that's just an AI that just runs shit. Because Trump is the Republican Party. Trump is MAGA. Trump is politics, baby. But with that... I think we've discussed this plenty. Do we have any final thoughts on the speaker situation? Obviously, we'll be monitoring it, see what happens, you know, this coming week. Um, but with that, let's move on to our next big story of the day. So we have Israel under fire. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared a state of war after Palestinian militants in Gaza launched a massive rocket barrage and sent gunmen into Israeli territory. The conflict escalated with over 2,200 rockets fired into Israel and armed groups infiltrating by land, sea, and air. Israel reported at least 200 casualties that has gone up since, while Hamas has uh, taken hostages and prisoners of war. Israel retaliated by striking Hamas's targets in Gaza, including a residential tower. The situation intensified as Hamas launched more rockets, and the international community responded with mixed reactions, with some leaders defending Israel's right to defend itself, while others condemning the violence. In Turkey, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan called for the parties involved to, quote, act with restraint in the light of events in Israel this morning and to stay away from impulsive steps that will escalate tensions, end quote. While Egypt's foreign uh, minister, Sameh Shukri, said he is quote, intensive communication with the international officials to stop the ongoing escalation. European Commissioner President Ursula von der Leyen said on X the, that she has unequivocally condemned the violence. It is, quote, uh, terrorism in its most despicable form. Israel has the right to defend itself against such heinous attacks, end quote. French President Emmanuel Macron expressed his, quote, full solidarity with the victims, while German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said, Germany condemns these Hamas attacks and stands by Israel. There have also been many um, kidnappings, for instance, by Hamas uh, of the Israelis, and they're using them as human shields now. This is such an incredible mess. It's actually, I think, the single highest death count that Israel's seen in all of its history. So we are witnessing history in front of us. This is, there's terrible bloodshed going on if you've seen some of the videos online it is incredibly graphic and disgusting quite frankly and i think everyone's sort of appalled at that but this being such a divisive issue um, people are really just picking their side and running with it at this point we're not going to go into all of the history of you know israel and palestine but what are your guys thoughts on these recent events maybe how it plays into the history of their of, of the tensions of these two nations and is there a path to resolve this or are we about to see one of the hottest wars in israel um, basically, maybe ever. Well, one of the issues with the Gaza Strip, which is where Hamas operates, and where that's sort of one of the fragments of Palestinian land that's still in the state of Israel today. Of course, the Palestinians don't have an official state, which makes things very difficult, both internationally as well as trying to secure their own freedoms, in a sense. And so, you know, a lot of people have sort of, the popular opinion is a two-state solution, where you sort of partition Israel you have one part of the country that is for Palestinians and another part for Israelis. Now, the Israelis are doing very well in the conflict, right? 
after the Yom Kippur War, I think it was called also the Six Day War, you know, there were a little a little around like a thousand casualties for the Israeli forces um, where they launched this sort of they did very well, essentially, you know, where sort of the Palestinian movement um, and these Arab forces came in. They ended up getting beaten very badly. Israel expanded, greatly expanded its territories across um, to what it is today. And that's sort of frozen in time. Both after that, there was the Nakba. There there were all these other events after that, right? But that was sort of one of the precipitating events decades ago. And so this conflict has really been frozen. And it's been inching along a little bit with the Israeli sediments, which are illegal sediments, where basically a bunch of Israeli citizens will go into Palestinian lands, um, set up you know, a home base, start building out communities with armed guards and security towers and what have you, and just slowly but surely sort of like settling, actively settling land that is Palestinian at the moment. Um, I know like this, this ends up being a highly like contentious issue, highly political issue. Obviously with what's going on now, you know, the, the common response from, for example, Bernie, you mentioned, um, uh, Macron, you mentioned Schultz and others, but you know if you look at the U.S., you look at what Jewish politicians are saying. Look at Bernie Sanders, for example, who is Jewish. He'll say, on the one hand, like if you look back at what Bernie has said over the years, he'll say that what Israel is doing is not right um, in terms of the Palestinian lands. But at the same time, he will call this out and say this attack is horrific. Of course, on the other side of that, though, the retaliation, you know, it's this just is not going to end well. You know, it's going to be bloodshed on a massive scale. There's going to be pretty much exclusively civilian casualties on both sides. Like the military casualties are not going to be close to the amount of civilians that die as a result of this. Um, And overall, I don't know, like it's what can you say other than this is a terrible situation? Um, But also at the same time with Gaza, like Israel really does control a lot of what goes on there. So they cut electricity. They effectively... For example, um, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, they can only fish, you know, so far off the land. The Israeli um, Navy essentially patrols the waters and has them hemmed in. They're basically kept in this little box and they're basically told just sit there and starve to death and do nothing. And so when something like this happens, it's I don't know, (laughs) it's it's sort of like what other options really are there Um, if you are this, you know, on the one hand, we'll say they're a terrorist cell. On the other, you know, of course, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. It's a terrible phrase. It's overused. But in this case, it's, it's very true. Like, for example, with them bombing um, that one uh, residential tower, it's like, yes, there are civilians there. There are also members of Hamas there. So, like, what do you do when someone is, you know, bombing you or firing into your territory or invading you? And they're living in a civilian population. Like, what can you really do um, with our current conception of war? So it's just, I don't know, terrible situation. But uh, Pratik, maybe maybe bring it back to, I don't know, how does this end up impacting the, the U.S. side of things? Because obviously we've heard about stuff, you know, on our end with, um, whatchamacallit, people like Ilhan Omar and then, of course, Bernie will say stuff, AOC will say stuff, and then, you know, all the Republicans will basically say, you know, we must support Israel no matter what. The Democrats are a tiny bit more mixed. Um, how do you think this ends up? But at the end of the day, of course, like Biden and everyone else just supports Israel. That's de facto American foreign policy. So I don't know. What are your thoughts, Pratik? So I think when it deals with these things, a lot of the problem is stem from how we behave whenever there isn't any conflict, right? 
we have to understand that there's certain groups like this, like Hamas, Hezbollah, that have been around for years. Most of these groups are terrorist organizations in their own right. The reason that they are terrorist organizations is they literally have one goal in mind, and that is to shut down Israel. Israel is a Jewish state. We are Muslim people. We need to shut down Israel because Israel is like, you know, a crime to exist in itself. That has been the policy that has existed for a lot of these groups. And the problem is that we always try to undercoat these groups because we try to look at all the conflicts that they have within themselves. We can complain about, oh, Palestinians are not given the right treatment. They're not treated properly. They have all these other injustices that they face. And this is why all these groups exist. And we try to justify why these, why all these groups exist. But if they really want a two-state solution, the fact is that you can't just start fighting a war all the time and expect and like try to blow up all these places if you want to get your way. Because if anything, that is what makes you a terrorist organization. And now we can argue that Israel and Palestine have had to try, have tried to, especially the PLO. I think PLO is the more genuine organization of all the Palestinian organizations that do exist that have tried to create a compromise. And these compromises have, they've tried to make these compromises for the last 50, 60 years. And this is including presidents that were more dovish. And this includes presidents that were more hawkish. Ariel Sharon, who was the most anti-Palestinian leader that probably ever got elected from Israel. I think Bibi is, but yeah. Yeah, but Bibi is a little bit different because Bibi is like, uh, I would say Bibi is like Angela Merkel. These people are there forever. I don't. So they flip-flop on a lot of their Tell me more. But I don't fully I think, agree, Pratik, but sure. That's fine. On. But my point is that they've tried to have, you know, negotiate a compromise for many years. And the problem is that they've never really gotten anywhere. And no matter how much Israel, for all it's worth, has tried to fold, because you have to remember, most countries, when they control territory, if they have other organizations or other countries, within, you know, other groups within themselves that are trying to be like, let's try to fight for our, you know, freedom and try to create an our independence movement, most of those people always get shut down. That's usually what happens in countries. Like Nick says, like every country, they have um, autonomy over using their defense and they also have autonomy over their military. So they have the right to do whatever it takes to protect their country. Israel, for all it's worth, has done as much compromising as they can to try to get Palestine on board. Problem is that it's never, it's never worked out. Like, and it's not, it's not just because of one side or another. We have had people like Shimon Perez, and they've had people like Ariel Sharon. Even Bibi, for all it's worth, has tried to make amends. The problem is that they just never had any compromise. We can blame it on one side being bad or another. But in the end, it's just, you know, it just hasn't worked out. It's like a bad, you know, arrangement. These things just don't work. And I think the problem with this situation is that eventually it all builds up to create a massive problem. And it's kind of been that buildup in this whole thing. But at the same time, half of this stuff also happens because organizations around our world try to, you know, consolidate behind these groups that do are actually terrorist groups and try to give them leverage or try to make them like, you know, feel like they belong. We should, you know, appreciate the work that they do and all the good things that they do when the fact is that they have one agenda in mind and that is to blow up Israel. And I think we like you have or European organizations that cut down funding for Hamas. You've had um I think the European Union even the commission even provides a lot of funding to these people. Then you have other countries that provide funding to these people because they feel like we should donate and help fund these organizations because of all the casualties and all the problems that they face and then you also have 
terrorist countries that help provide, you know, funding to these people. And that includes countries like Iran. And that's been the big point of context within the conflict between the Republicans and Democrats is about the Iran funding. But overall, I just feel that it's all just a, it just it just happened that they've just never had any compromise that have worked out. And this is just all the buildup of it. And I, in all honesty, I don't really blame either side. I just think that there's just certain militant groups that just got extra funding and some of their in their whole belief, especially Hamas and Hezbollah, and more than even the PLO, is that they literally just want to blow up Israel. And I think when that is their belief, we should treat those organizations like what they are. And if you like look at all these other terrorist groups that we have strong opinions about, like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and we're like, man, those people are so bad, they're terrible, we need to shut them down. I think we should have the same like opinion about other terrorist groups that exist as well, especially when they only have one goal in mind, and that is to blow up your ally of choice being Israel. And I think the fact is that Americans, American politics always has a problem where you have a Republican, then you have a Democrat. Whatever the Democrat does, the Republican has to overturn. Then when the Republican is there, they have to overturn whatever the Democrat before them has done. And the problem is that it all doesn't really create a unified policy. It just makes it a hodgepodge of policies that interact and just defect whatever each other person has done. And it is not beneficial for the overall output, which is Israel still being under fire. And Israel's always been under fire. They're always being attacked by every country and they always win that's israel so so the whole the whole founding of of israel i mean when the un came to be they actually proposed a two-state solution initially but it was the palestinians who said no we want a hundred percent of this land they went to war and it ended up losing more of their territory to israel and that's kind of been the story of this conflict israel is surrounded by enemies and they're attacked and then they end up taking up more land after they're attacked because they're winning, because they have more funding, because they're they're supported by the West. And that's kind of how this conflict has gone. If you look at the GDPs of Palestine versus Israel, it's just uncomparable. It's like 20 billion for Palestine, like 450 billion for Israel. The funding is completely on one side. Um, but if we're talking about wanting compromise, this is this has been going on since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. At heart of it, it's the British and French's. Uh, the reason this whole all exists is because the British and French basically promised the land to both groups, and then no, neither of the groups got what they wanted, and then the Palestinians got pissed off, went to war, and they've just been fighting about it ever since. Like we're in the midst of still the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which is kind of weird to say 80, 100 years later, but that's what we're dealing with right now. Um, and I want to lead into what Pratik was mentioning regarding the, the funding of Iran. But, but before I do that, Nick, did you have any thoughts on what was said before? That? Yeah, because I like to disagree with people. I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think at all we're dealing with the remnants of the Ottoman Empire, okay? I feel like I'm on some old like Greek you know, a little soap opera right now or some drama. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what this is. Am I, am I watching the ancient Romans, you know, being resurrected for the 50th telever, television series here? Oh boy. Um, I, I agree with you about the British. You thinking influence. about the Roman Empire, Nick? <laughs> I, who, who doesn't? Who doesn't at night? But, um, you know, thinking about the Balfour Declaration and what have you with the British, that's very fair. Um, but as far as what's going on on the ground today, to juxtapose what you were saying, the Israel has all the leverage today, right? The Palestinians have zero leverage. Sure. Every time they initiate a conflict, they lose, and they lose badly. And then all the territory that they have at the moment, it keeps shrinking and shrinking. So, like, if you look up, if anyone just goes and looks up a timeline of, like, the amount of deaths that are taking place in this conflict over time, 
Like you'll see a steady, a pretty, pretty consistent over the decades that in general, Palestinians tend to die at much higher rates from the Israeli military as opposed to Israelis dying for the Palestinians. So this is a bit really big deal for this one because so many Israelis have died for this one. I, I think it's like 800 now or something. We said 200 before. I think it's already quadrupled. Um, so just overall, like after the Oslo Accords and Camp David failed and all the, all this other stuff in the 90s and early 2000s, and BB, like to Pratik's point with uh, Merkel, has been around for a while, even though he stepped out, sort of like Putin, and then he like came right back in. <laughs> but um, with BB Netanyahu, um, the thing is, and fun fact, he went to MIT, by the way. So that's a little bit of trivia. Uh, <laughs> he was over here in the States. But for him... It's like the older he's gotten and the more cemented he's, he's been in Israeli politics, the less incentive they have to even negotiate in the first place, right? Tyler, to your point, if they win every single engagement and they always get more land, why would they bother negotiating? At this point, it's the Palestinians being like, hey, like, can we come to an agreement? And Israel's like, yeah, maybe. Give us all these concessions that we know you're not going to make. And then the Palestinians are like, all right, we're not going to make any of those concessions. And Israel's like, see, they don't want to come to the table. They don't want an agreement. And it's, vi- and it's vice versa. Like, they both do this thing. But the, the fact is that all the momentum and all the leverage is on Israel's side at this point in time. And, you know, for all the two-state solution stuff making a lot of sense, it's just not going to happen because Israel, to be honest, the person who's in the dominant position, who has all the leverage and all the incentive, they have no reason to accept putting themselves at a lesser state than they are now. So it's just not going to happen, which is sad. Yeah, but they have all the leverage because they're surrounded by people that have been trying to kill them for 80 years. So I wouldn't say it's so one-sided where, oh, of course we should negotiate and get with them what they want. Every time... No, I'm not saying they should. I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying that they they have all the power in this situation and therefore they don't need to do anything. They have all the power now, but that's because they've won for so long. And at the end of the day, we don't like to say it like this, but might is right in this world where it's like, if you can dominate a piece of land, you own that piece of land. That's kind of how things work. Israel's more powerful. They're going to dominate that space. And that just is what it is. And you know, the other irony, like the irony about all this stuff is like, we can blame that, oh, Israel is not conceding and Palestine really wants their land. And they've always wanted full sum. And they're like, no, we're not going to give it and all this other stuff. They've had all these conflicts. The thing is that all of these other countries around them, you have all these Middle Eastern countries around them. They've always been sympathetic toward the Palestinian cause. And they've also fought wars with them and they've tried to fight back, fight Israel to try to gain leverage and gain land. It's sort of changing with Saudi lost. Arabia, though. So we, hey, we're going to talk about the difference. Sure. I think well, yeah, the one thing there, too. the one thing there is like you always also think about maybe like they're they're expecting israel concede all this land if they really want to end all this conflict and they feel all sympathetic and sad about the palestinian situation why don't any of them give up some of their lands to be like oh let's just name this palestinian land and, the same and that's the classic argument, argument exists, like... the same argument that nick is saying exists everybody wants their leverage nobody wants to give up land it's kind of like if you were outside and you saw some hobo dude like that's outside you'd be like yeah, that guy's situation's sad. I feel so bad for him. But it's not like you're going to let him in your house. Be like, yo, man, I feel so sad for you. You can come stay with me now. That doesn't but Pratik, that is what happened. That is what happened. Most Palestinians living today live in the surrounding countries. A lot of them moved to Jordan. A lot of them moved to the surrounding areas. And they left the state of Israel because, to your point, they, you know, they kind of went to their friends. But at the same time, after t- if with your analogy... 
if you host someone for long enough and they never yeah, leave, hate them you start anyway. to resent them. And it's either yeah. like, okay, either they get absorbed into the population there or you remain sort of like the Kurds, a forever displaced people where you have your own unique identity and culture, but you don't have a formal state and you sort of exist across all these different countries, even though, you know, historically you did have some sort of land that you could explicitly call your home and you no longer can. And that's a sad thing. But it's also the right to land like that. that the, the part I can't support Israel on, it's like, oh, we need to own this land because we're the Jews and, and Jerusalem's here. And because of that, we we obviously own this land. But you have to understand that that propaganda only came about in the mid 20th century. Like people weren't weren't really say, Jews weren't saying that before that period of time. That is it to me. It's propaganda. It actually isn't. It isn't Jews fault. It's our fault. So in the 1940s, we're the ones that actually said that this is the creation of the state of Israel. Well, what do you mean? If anything, America. It's always the U.S. No, it's always the U.S. It's all of us. It's all of us Western powers. My point is, though, it's like in the end, you can't really blame any of these parties, and you can't really blame Israel because, again, you don't see Saudi Arabia being like, "All right, let's create a Palestinian nation because these people are suffering." The same way Israel is not going to be like, "Let's create a Palestinian nation because these people claim that this is their land. They haven't won their land. They've always lost. They have all these terrorist organizations that are trying to blow us up." But we need to feel sympathetic towards this cause because, you know, these people believe that this is their land. This may be their land, but you know. We need to just allow them to have this land. Nobody's doing that. And I think the same way that the other countries around them that feel all sympathetic toward the cause and are willing to finance all these terrorist organizations like Hamas to go blow up Israel are not like we need to allow Palestine to stay in our country and we need to create a whole separate nation for the Palestinians. Israel is not going to do the same thing either. And I think that's the problem with the conflict. But it's like it's always Israel is always expected to be the country that concedes. And it's like, it shouldn't be that way because it's like, yeah, if Palestine feels all suffering, they feel all these casualties and they feel that they haven't have the say, have had all the leverage at any point in time. Israel has also been the one that has been on the chopping block forever. All these countries around them want to literally blow them up. They're financing organizations like Iran is literally finance Hamas to go blow them up. And then you have other or you have all these other nations that as soon as Egypt or somebody like the Brotherhood or some other group comes in like, let's go take over Israel. All the other countries join the pact too because they don't really have any, you know, care or love for Israel. So it's like you feel bad, but you can only feel bad for so much. Either I I get what you're saying, Pratik, and for what you and Tyler have said about you know the historical background of everyone in the area being so hostile and for hating Israel and for wanting it wiped off the face of the earth like Arafat, like others, that makes a lot of sense. I guess some of you know, of course, sympathy. It's like you want to have it both ways. The people I do end up feeling the worst for, to be honest, like. If you look at Gaza, which really is a terrible place to live, if you look at Gaza, the median age there is 18 years old. You have all these kids who didn't grow up with any of the history of this stuff. And yet, like, they, it's sort of like, you know, the classic argument of like, oh, who is this hitting the hardest? It's the think of the children. And that sounds like really tired and whatever. But at the same time, like, you have a whole generation of kids who don't have all the his- this historical baggage. And it's like their lives just absolutely suck no matter what happens. And I feel very bad for them. But again, to both your points, um, you know, having state sovereignty after, you know, being hated by everyone else in the area and still surviving despite that, you know, there's something to be said for that as well. 
Um, and, you know, it, <laughs> I hate to do the both sides thing, but eh, that's how it is sometimes. Let's transition here. I would love to discuss the Abraham, Abrahamic Accords, but we're also going to be discussing that that $6 billion transfer, or not transfer, but um, unfreezing to Iran. So, Prateek, lay it out. So, my title is called, It's All Your Fault. Former President Donald Trump and other GOP candidates pointed to a $6 billion transfer to Iran as they reacted to the Hamas attack on Israel. They claimed that the attack was fueled by the perception of U.S. weakness under President Joe Biden. However, administration officials classified that the funds were not U.S. taxpayer money, but Iranian assets held in South Korea. The money now in a restricted account in Qatar is meant for humanitarian purposes and is under close oversight. While the attack on Israel brought unity among Republican candidates, it also highlighted divisions within the party regarding foreign policy, particularly on issues like Ukraine. So with that, Nick and Tyler, what's your thoughts on, you know, this whole movement saying that Iran is the reason why Hamas is Hamas? Well, I've been talking a lot. Tyler, let's let's get you in. Yeah. So so there, the so uh, this six billion dollars, it was oil money that Iran had that we somehow came in possession of and we basically unfroze it. The Biden administration for for five prisoners, we swapped five prisoners for six billion dollars. This is the Biden administration. So everyone just think about that. For, to me, I heard that. I was like, wow, we probably got some big concessions, right? No, they said that these these funds had to be used for humanitarian reasons and for nothing else. And they also said that these funds had not been used for these events. So that's the argument. It's like these funds, they couldn't have been used to, to help Hamas. We know they haven't been touched yet. We're still in the process of unfreezing it. But, but a point I heard uh, recently that makes a lot of sense to me is, if you unfreeze that money and say you can only use it for humanitarian aid, it, it just means they get to divert other funds to fund these terrorist groups like Hamas. And the reason a country like Iran would want to do that is because we have these Abrahamic Accords with Saudi Arabia, who's actually trying to integrate Israel into the rest of the Middle East, trying to make it more inclusive where they're not constantly going to war all the time and like beating the shit out of each other, quite frankly, because that's what's gone on in the Middle East for a very long time now. And Saudi Arabia, for all their faults, is finally like guys we need to get our stuff together if we actually if the middle east itself wants to be a, a power on the world stage so the conspiracy is the funds that we unfroze weren't directly used to fund the hamas group but iran knew they were getting these funds and were able to send additional funds to groups like hamas in order to carry out these attacks and something uh, slightly unrelated to this it's like how did the israeli uh, Mossad not see this coming like they are one of the most uh, best intelligence operations in the entire world um they have obviously sabotaged iran and the nuclear stuff but they're known for just being very um knowledgeable about what's happening in the world and the fact that they were invaded and they didn't even know it was coming is absolutely shocking to me and i'm sure to the world absolutely to Mossad. so i know i put a lot out there what are your guys thoughts so one thing i wanted to add is that there's a lot of reports that have taken place over the many over the last few years that point to how much terrorism is actually funded by iran iran is the largest state sponsor of terrorism um, this is all like um, this has been like an actual fact that everybody knows. Hamas is responsible for financing a lot of the terrorist groups that do exist that do attack Israel, particularly Hamas and Hezbollah, and including other groups that exist, including the Taliban too. They've actually been a larger large sponsor of the Taliban, but the Taliban has their own country now, so it's a little bit, a little bit different. But when it deals with um, state sponsoring of terrorism, according to Israeli Defense Minister Yov Gallant. 
Iran sends $100 million annually to Hamas, $700 million annually to Hezbollah, and tens of millions to Islamic Jihad. So the point here being is that Iran does spend a lot of money on terrorism. Now, with these funds in particular that are being referenced, these funds may or may not have been used for that purpose. But then you also think about it this way. Iran, after the Iran nuclear deal and all that stuff, they basically had the leverage to do whatever they wanted to do, but they just had to cover it up if anybody came to ask them about it. So what that means is, is that Iran has to, on pay, face value, show that these, this money is used for humanitarian purposes, the same way that they have to show on face value that anything that was negotiated within these deals that have taken place is used for a specific cause, being humanitarian purposes. But if they don't, do, don't use that money for humanitarian purposes, there's no way you can really know about it unless Iran explicitly says that this money wasn't used for humanitarian purposes. And the reason I'm saying it that way is that there are a lot of state sponsor, like, you know, there's a lot of like U.S. Department of State and other, you know, reports that you can find that is very like, you know, every it's like public publicly available information that does show that Iran is a major terrorism sponsor and they do spend 100 to 200 million dollars annually on financing Hamas. Iran has its own issues. They have problems where people are like dying in their country. They have issues where America and a lot of these other countries have provided aid, especially from third party groups, even though it's not America directly. But they've all a lot of nations have provided them with financial aid have provided them with support. But the Iranian government is the Iranian government. Their goal is that they really hate Israel and they really hate America. But more than America, they really hate Israel and they hate us because we're supporting Israel. And they don't want to see Israel there. So a lot of their funding and finances that they do collect within their country domestically, a lot of that money does go towards foreign terrorism activity. So the reason I'm saying it that way is that maybe the Republican sentiment about this is correct. But these funds in particular that are being talked about, they're not necessarily going to this specific operation. But the major context being is that America is negotiating and has created policies with Iran. And they do know that by negotiating and creating policies with Iran, they are going to open up more freely and broadly into the world, especially through free aid, free trade activities. And they have been using a lot of the funds that they have accumulated for the aspect of foreign terrorism against Israel. Not necessarily everywhere around the world, but primarily towards Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Taliban. So I just wanted to bring that out there. The Iranians really don't like Israel if you didn't catch on to that. And I don't know if I made my point clear before, but the Abrahamic Accords, the reason Iran doesn't like that is because they want to eliminate Israel. They do not want Israel to be a state, essentially. And I also just want to add that I saw that Joe Biden in 2021 had actually overturned something, a Trump policy, to give Palestinians $235 million in aid a year. Of course, again, it's supposed to go to altruistic things to help poor people, all that, but we don't have the best accountability. We don't have the best accountability with our own funds and how we spend our own money, let alone when we're sending it to these third world countries. Um, but with that, uh, Nick, what, what do you have to say about this? No, not too much else to add. I mean, I think it we've covered it pretty comprehensively here. Um, I think the, again, the only surprising thing, of course, which is being, you know, you read any major publication, what people are worried about is having another regional uh, conflict where this could spread. For example, you're, you're talking about Iran. 
you know, if Iran gets involved, then Saudi Arabia is going to want to get involved. Like if, you know, it's sort of this domino effect of people just piling into this, this broader thing. So hopefully that, that does not occur. Um, but yeah, again, very sad situation. And well, what did occur recently, Nick, that we should be moving on to? Well, as we've been talking, RFK Jr. has announced an independent run to serve as president of the U.S. So he's dropped out. He's not in the DNC anymore. He's not running as a Democrat. He's all independent, baby. So for this, you know, it's so funny. Of course, I feel like Trump only compliments people who he knows have no shot of winning whatsoever. (laughs) And so (laughs) two weeks ago, Trump said, quote, I like him a lot. I've known him for a long time uh, of, of Kennedy. So I just think that's a little funny, but again, he, he RFK Jr. made this announcement in uh, Philadelphia, and he said that he doesn't want to be affiliated with either party, and said there's a, ri- a quote, rising tide of discontent in the country, and that he wants to make a new declaration of independence from corporations, the media, and the two major political parties. Pratik and Tyler, your reaction. Yeah, Pratik, you first. I'm interested in seeing what happens. This is the most important story probably of our time because this is going to shake up this whole election. In recent polls, the big, the most recent poll that has taken place between just Trump, Biden, and Kennedy has Trump at 33%, Biden at 31%, and Kennedy at 14%. What that means is that obviously Kennedy is going to split both votes. I mean, every, obviously the consensus more is going to split more Democrat votes. but he's Because Trump and Biden votes. were even before this. But Trump knows this. And Trump knows that Kennedy running is better for his campaign than it is for Biden's campaign. That's true. Because Kennedy, for all his worth, is a Democrat. And I think the main thing here is that when this split happens, um, we still don't know how the UAW people are going to go. Those people are like, you know, they could go to any of these three people. But one thing that definitely happens is that some of these things that have been being talked about Biden, oh, Biden is not left wing enough. He's not, you know, left enough on environmental issues. He's not left enough on issues involving, you know, he, he's not, he's like um, Biden is more on the side that we need to vaccinate everybody. And then you have all these anti-vax people that are part of the Jill Stein Green Party party movement that are like you know we anti-vax but we still left wing. don't give jill stein any credit okay i know she's associated with the green party but what has she done all right what about about uh uh, the crazy crystal lady um what was her name mary elizabeth williamson i think it it really impacts marianne williamson more than anything else (laughs) if you ever thought that there was going to be an open primary among democrats which isn't going to happen anyway but if you thought that was the case that's not the case anymore. Marianne Williamson's still going to be there with her 2% of the vote. But with with RFK, I think this is good for RFK in its own context. RFK is going to get more national coverage because of this. He's going to become a Ross Perot type styled candidate because of this. And I think overall, I think it's going to shake up the whole election. And Kennedy can have his name all over shaking up this whole election. And if Democrats feel that they their party needs change and they feel that Biden is not left enough for them, then RFK is their guy. And what that does is it's going to really change up things. But again, overall, my main political context is always third parties can't win. You need electoral college votes to win. There's never been an electoral college state that has ever been won by an independent candidate. And I think Overall, you're never going to have an independent candidate that wins. But you're going to shake up numbers. You're going to shake up the how voting takes place. But 
an independent candidate is a pointless candidate. And all this is going to do is this is going to help Trump consolidate his lead. And he's been having a lead over Biden in recent polls, even though minor. And this is only going to become bigger and bigger if Kennedy is involved in this race, even especially if that mansion spice comes in a little bit, too. So I just wanted to add for context that four of his siblings, so former Maryland Lieutenant Governor Kathleen Kennedy, um, former uh, rep in Massachusetts, a Democrat, uh, Joe Kennedy II, and then Rory Kennedy and Kerry Kennedy, who the two of them weren't elected officials, but the four of them have released a joint statement as of today saying, quote, the decision of our brother Bobby to run as a third party candidate against Joe Biden is dangerous to our country. End quote. Bobby might share the same vision as our father, but he does not share the same values, vision, or judgment. Today's announcement is deeply saddening. We denounce his candidacy and believe wow. it is perilous for our country. Wow. That's his own siblings. Yeah. Like, that's rough, wow. you know? That's the, Thank you for reading that. That's kind of enlightening. Um, it I'm actually sure that'll convince game. some people. It, well, I don't know if it does. So I'm, this is where I'm going to disagree with the critique. Um, so I, he says third parties are useless. I don't. So I think third parties represent a faction of people that are disenfranchised by one of the both – probably both the major parties. And I think in moving forward, that faction, that group of people, maybe it's 5 10% – are going to have to be accounted for. You're going to have to appeal somewhat to those people because you don't want the fact that there is third parties challenging your status. Like, I don't think the Republicans or Democrats truly like this. I know Trump does because he sees a path to victory, but I don't think either Republicans or Democrats want anyone touching their stronghold on this the American political system. So I think there is value here and... This is what you get. If you're popular enough and you are independent, you have more leverage than pretty much anyone else, more so than anyone else running in the race except for Biden and Trump. RFK just cemented his, you know, his, his ability, not ability, um, leverage, I guess I, is what I have to say, um, over the election. And that's really crucial. And I think that, like Pratik said, is going to make this a major story moving forward. So this is something we definitely have to keep our eye on. I don't, you know, necessarily agree with RFK on a lot of things, but if I don't like Trump or Biden, maybe that's the guy I vote for just to say F you to the system. And I think a lot of people are fed up with how politics has been going. So I could see that playing a huge role in this next election. Are you going to vote for RFK, Tyler? Me? I, I said I, I'm not a Biden or Trump supporter. Um, Uh-oh. Maybe. I, RFK. Me, knowing, <laughs> knowing that he's not going to win, just to say I really th- – this is my vote to say I don't approve of what's going on in the political system. I might. Who knows? All right. Well, speaking of – Well, we well Nick, about... do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you guys have any thoughts? Or Tyler could be the deciding vote. Yeah, <laughs> RFK wins by one vote in Virginia. <laughs> Who was that guy? Um, but no, again, it's you know he said he was going to do it a couple weeks ago. I think he actually went on. There's a comedian Theo Vaughn. He went on his podcast. He went on a few other things and and said that he was going to do this. And his campaign, of course, said that there was a big announcement uh, coming up. And so like he, this was well telegraphed. And he's been doing the media circuit all over again for independent shows and podcasts to try to get this out there. So, um, you know, it sort of to be expected, but at the same time, you know, one, the members of the family stuff, I don't know if that's going to be reported as widely, but you know, that, that really, I think is a terrible look where so many, uh, like so many of these politicians, the way you run, part of it is you're selling, you're selling yourself as part of this functioning family, 
right? So for a lot of people, like Ron DeSantis will say, like, I'm a family man. Even Joe Biden will be like, I'm a family man. And Trump, of course, like, trotted out his kids in front of everything. Like, we all remember he's like, oh, Ivanka. Ivanka's the greatest person. If she, was, uh, if she wasn't related to me, I would marry her. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, he oh he said God. stuff like that. <laughs> you know, a little sus. But, um, you know, a lot of this is so much like this family-oriented image. And for RFK's own family to come out and disavow him, I, I think that's a big deal. But um, again, to your point, though, I'm not really happy with <laughs> the current candidates. I don't want a repeat of last time. I would like someone else to be there. You know, that's and fair. Do, do I like him necessarily? Not necessarily. It's it's almost like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, where it's like you have one piece of porridge. You know, it's too hot. The other's too cold. And you expect <laughs> RFK to be just right. But it's not. It's even worse than the other two. Oh and you God. just throw it out the window. So I ultimately, I don't know, like what, what you, piece of what do you thought was sugar appear? on your porridge with salt? <laughs> but, but I do but think yeah. this is going to overall change things. And I think if RFK somehow manages to win, I don't know how it's going to happen. But let's say RFK becomes the first independent president of our time lifetime. We're going to have to figure out a new definition for presidential voice. Because, man, that guy's voice, he sounds like a chain smoker when he runs for president. <laughs> a guy sounds like Kermit the Frog trying to become president. And I oh think if he becomes president, we got to redefine those things. We can't be like, this is America. It'd be like, whatever. This is America. <laughs> exactly that. That's what's going to become the way we say this is America. So with that, let's move on. Yeah, we're going to be keeping an eye on that, of course. That's going to play, especially in the polling. We're going to be keeping you updated on the poll, so you got to stay tuned for that. But moving on here, we have another Pratik's famous lines. We have Volodymyr gets Voldemort treatment. The collapse of Ukraine aid in Congress unfolded over months, aligning with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell's concerns. McConnell had cautioned that backing for Ukraine was at risk as some vocal Republican lawmakers opposed sending U.S. funds abroad to confront Russia. Despite McConnell's efforts to gamer, uh, support, garner support through speeches and White House appeals, a scaled-back $6 billion aid package for Ukraine failed to pass. This setback highlights the uh, challenging uh, challenge to the majority's will. President Biden is planning a major speech on U.S. aid to Ukraine while Washington grapples with the aftermath. So um, what are your guys' thoughts? That We're talking about Israel now. Maybe we're kind of diverting our funds a little bit. We have multiple wars going on at this point. So what are your thoughts on the current um, situation? There should be a new war that starts in the next week. And then we can... Probably. Sorry. Probably Taiwan. Republican Civil one. War. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, I think when you deal with um, people like Ramaswamy and you deal with a lot of these MAGA voices that have come out, a lot of their sentiments do have a lot of movement towards them. I think a lot of people in our country are pissed off that we do go to war and we do spend all this money at conflict and in war. And I think with Ukraine in particular, we have spent a lot of money in Ukraine. We've talked about this week on week on week, but it's like... We spend so much money for more, much money in Ukraine. We don't really even know where this money goes. We think is going to help them in this conflict, but the conflict keeps going on. It doesn't really end. We're not going to shut down Russia. Russia is a large nation that has a lot of resources and a lot of money to do a lot of things. And even though like they may have you know their own financial problems going on right now, it's still Russia. So I think the challenge with all this stuff is like the. This is going to be an endless um, financial, you know, loan situation that continues to go on. 
until the conflict ends. We don't know how long this conflict is going to last. And I think that there's a lot of voices opposed to it. And if, in all honesty, maybe this might be what the majority even feels. We don't know. Sure, a lot of people are very outspoken that we need to finance and support Ukraine. Most of us, me and Nick will both probably be like, yeah, we should support Ukraine and their efforts because they're, you know, they're a democratic country and we need to make sure that we're fighting for their rights and the people that are living in those countries, in that country that are being, you know, potentially having the worst situation to happen to them of all time of just Russia just invading them like crazy. But I do think that, there is a limit to how much you can go in terms of funding. We aren't a bank. I mean, we are a bank in its own context, but we're not like a free bank. If we give you enough money, the thing is we have to eventually stop. And we've given them millions and millions of dollars at this point. And then they came back for another $6 billion aid package. That's a lot of money. Imagine what you can do with $6 billion. And I don't think that $6 billion is going to end the Ukraine-Russia war. You're just going to have to give them more money once you give them the $6 billion because they're going to come back for more. Imagine and what Iran can do with $6 billion. Dollars. <laughs> they might fund a whole attack on Israel. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Yeah, right? <laughs> Nick, got thoughts? My mind is a blank canvas. Okay, I, I could be manipulated in any way. Pratik, guide me. Okay, I have a letter next to my name. What should I do? How should I fall in line? Do you find fund Ukraine or not, Nick? I'm voting fund. <laughs> yes print more money we can print more money unlimited no, okay money. look all right you want me to actually say something here i'll say it uh -oh. all right so u.s we win the war in vietnam right but we actually lose the war because we lost sure. even though we had full military superiority soviets invade afghanistan full military superiority they lose the war they disintegrate like you know a few years down the line they don't even exist as a country anymore for russia going in you know sure they may have the upper hand in a lot of these ways but just through sheer attrition it may not even be worth it for them to continue the way that they started this war right they started they invaded the entire country which first of all was a huge surprise you know it was sort of messaged as they're only going to invade eastern ukraine and that's it right they invaded the entire country they got pushed back in all these different places and of course the fighting has settled in eastern ukraine like it always was going to um and so you know to to the sort of land and borders argument you know because on the one hand when ukraine still wasn't a national identity like 100 years ago like there there was no ukrainian identity it did not exist it existed in the intelligentsia it existed with the academics but it was not like a common thing amongst the people living in that part of the world fast forward now ukraine is a very real thing it does have a culture it has its own unique language which granted it did before but it, it's an, its own thing right and Russia is sort of those those weird border towns where, you know, even though there's ethnic Russians, but it's in modern day Ukraine, you know, that's that's like the strange thing that you have to figure out, which is like, what do you do with those territories where it is split, where, you know, it's not all the way over in Kiev, where it's, you know, clearly Ukrainian and its own unique thing. But on some of these eastern border towns where things really are sort of a blend, one, something like this ends up reinforcing that, but two... I think just as we talked about on previous, you know, previous times, end of the day, for the United States, what do we want? We don't want any strong global challengers. We don't want Russia. We don't want China to be strong and bully people around in the Pacific. We don't want Russia to be strong and bully people around in Eurasia. And then the same thing in the Middle East. We don't want anyone, for example, Iran, like we don't want them to have total power over the region, right? We don't want any of that. 
So it's in our best interest to weaken Russia any way we can. And if we can do that on the cheap, which I know this seems like a lot of money, but we're not actually sending U.S. soldiers over there, which, again, is what we a lot of U.S. foreign policy is just arming people. Right. If you read Ambrose or, or any of the sort of big books that, you know, if you want to work for the State Department and they recommend what to read, like it'll tell you U.S. foreign policy for the most part is just arming the people who live in that area and then helping them fight off whoever it is that we're opposing. Right. That's how we always do things. And when troops do go in, like in Vietnam, it usually ends pretty badly. The American people are not happy and we always withdraw people like we are a country that never wants to get involved with wars. But we do end up funding and financing and selling guns <laughs> for a lot of wars. <laughs> that's that's what we do. Right. That's sort of the paradox. Um, but end, end of the day, I think, you know, funding for Ukraine makes a lot of sense. But to Pratik's point earlier, there needs to be some accountability. Right. You can't just blank check early days of the invasion. Blank check. One hundred percent is reasonable. But after a year of fighting, blank check no longer makes sense. So there needs to be some controls as to how things are actually spent. And for example, there have been accusations of corruption within that government. And you really do need to start verifying that stuff to say, hey, are we actually sending you money so that you can help defend yourselves and win this war and have regional and land autonomy? Or is this money just lining someone's random pockets? And that is not acceptable. I hope that's not the case. But again, I think the conflict has matured to the point where we should be figuring that out. I think that's what we're moving towards. Um, but at the end of the day, if it's just like a simple, do we fund or do we not fund? I think it's in the U.S.'s interest, clearly, for Russia not to be strong, not to get more territory, not to get more land. And so I think we should support Ukraine. And to go against my own point, Russia's strategy is basically to wait out the West because we don't have much patience for the sort of war that's going on across the world. U.S. lives are not at risk. We're at a period with high inflation. People are struggling struggling financially. It's just like a whirlwind of, you know, um, various reasons why we don't really want to fund them as much at this point, which why it would make complete sense to me why the MAGA wing is kind of going that route. I also just wanted to mention one thing. We did actually send an aircraft carrier, our largest one, to Israel, by the way. I didn't oh, wow. mention that during that story. Yeah, so that that's kind of, Was you know, that we sent troops. Um, Biden, yeah, sent, he sent yeah, it in. So. Um, j just wanted to, m to mention that we are actually getting more active there than we have traditionally in many of these various wars. I think the other thing is, um, we talk about the $6 billion aid package, right? Obviously, it's a lot of money with Ukraine because we've already spent a lot of money. But if we gave a $6 billion aid package to Israel, I don't think anybody would have a problem with it. I think Republicans and Democrats would get on board for their own selfish reasons on why we should provide $6 billion of aid to Israel. Today we different would. Different than Ukraine. Yeah, right. If this was today. a week ago, we would that's say no. Fair too. <laughs> that's fair, too. You got a point. Oh but, and that's where somebody like Ramaswamy comes in. It's like, Ramaswamy's not anti-Israel, but he's anti-funding money in Ukraine because it's a conflict that we have zero in incentive to do anything. Like, it's a conflict where we've never really been in Ukraine. Ukraine was originally a Soviet territory. Then they became a non-Soviet territory. They were under the influence of the Russians. They were under the influence of, you know, that Eastern Bloc. And then Ukraine decided, you know, the last 10 years that they were starting to become more democratic. And then they decided to move west. But... America has never really had a lot of interest in Ukraine, as opposed to Israel. 
America has always been involved in Israel. Israel gets attacked by the rest of the world. America is number one ally to Israel. If Israel had to choose an ally that they have in the world, and if like if it was like, all right, let's it's either you or I mean, if it was like, all right, we had to decide who's the survival of the fittest among our allies, Israel would choose America before any other country. They would let all the Amer- other countries die. We have the biggest economy. America. I mean, come on, and I think that's why. It's different when something happens to Israel. People, regardless of what party you're in, you could be a Democrat, you can be a Republican, you will still feel very sympathetic towards the cause that, oh, Israel has been attacked. We need to do whatever it takes to help out Israel. And if a politician was to be like, man, I don't know, we need to save our money. We'd be spending a lot of our money, too much debt crisis, and they're like, we don't want to support Israel. That politician will lose. Doesn't matter what party they run for. Doesn't matter what post they run for. If Ramaswamy today decided to be like, we shouldn't finance the Israel, we shouldn't help Israel in this conflict. Ramaswamy was at seven percent, will be at one percent. That would be the catastrophic end to Ramaswamy. I think that's the thing. Is Israel is a very different situation, and then there's Ukraine, but then then we deal with Trump. So, um, Nick, tell us about the Trump court drama. Well, I want to say one last thing. This is a quote from Pence, by the way. Coming in out of left field, Mike Pence reacts to this. Loser Pence. Quote, I call on Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Ron DeSantis to abandon the language of appeasement to say that we will stand strong with Israel. We will stand strong with Ukraine. And we will stand strong as the leader of the free world. I just think that's so interesting that Mike Pence is like being actively quoted in these articles. Um but Pence can to your point, stay strong okay, for let's move on to um, the court date. So in the legal proceedings involving former President Donald Trump, special counsel Jack Smith, which, as Pratik has pointed out before, sounds like a fake name. I totally agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jack Smith is resisting Trump's attempt to postpone his trial on charges of mishandling classified info until after the 2024 election. Smith's office contends there's insufficient justification for such a delay, refuting Trump's claims related to secure facilities and clearances. The filing suggests that Trump's retention of classified materials from the White House and Mar-a-Lago is undisputed, but questions remain about the circumstances, intent, and sensitivity of these materials. Now, prosecutors acknowledge security concerns for document access, but assert that measures are in place to address those concerns. Going to Trump's attorneys, though, they claim that the document review hindrances are met with the assertion that Arrangements for this review, could, dude, this is so legalistic, oh my lord. <laughs> but uh, end of the day, the document in question, what's really going on here is that if the documents were discovered, as they were discovered at Mar-a-Lago, with Trump facing these legal challenges on multiple fronts, like he, he could just continues to say that it's all politically motivated, it's a nothing burger, there's nothing there, and to not worry about it. And that he, they're after him, they're persecuting him, they're coming after you next, and that's how it is. Critique. So my thing, I made sure I wrote all that context for a reason, just because I wanted to leave it out there because this is an important story in its own context. If somehow this document case prevents Trump from being a candidate and it prevents Trump from running and it prevents, you know, then that changes the whole game. All these debates with all those losers, all those losers become winners again. Because then they have to decide, you have to decide as a Republican voter among all those losers, which of these people would be the one that succeeds Trump. But until then, this storyline is a storyline that doesn't really matter all that much because then you know and everybody knows that unless Trump goes to jail, 
this none of this stuff is going to matter all that much it's just another storyline and trump has it is all politically motivated in its own context whether or not you're you know whatever you believe in the end of the day it happened because trump's running for president and that therefore all of these stories become relevant again so i think it is important and it's not important in his own context Trump obviously wants to delay the drama until after the 2024 election because he knows the drama is going to happen. But it's one of those that if this stuff, if it does stop Trump from running, Democrats win. And I'm not saying that because of any other context. If Joe Biden is a candidate, Democrats will win this election. And the reason is, is that there is really no other second or third or fourth Republican that really has a chance against Biden being an incumbent. The reason Donald Trump has the biggest chance over anything else is because he was also previously an incumbent. So that means most of the people in our country at some point in time all voted Republican to elect Donald Trump. And I think... This whole case, this whole thing, it's all hinging upon the fact that if Donald Trump doesn't run, what happens if he can't run? Joe Biden will be the candidate for the Democrats unless Democrats don't want Joe Biden. And in that case, it's all free for all again, too. What, how are their Democratic primary processes going to happen? Will RFK become the Democrat? All of these question marks become question marks. And that's the issue in this whole court drama thing is that we want to see that. All of these semantics, all of this other stuff, it's whatever. But what matters is if can Trump run or can Trump not run? And if Trump can't run, what's going to happen? And if Trump does run and if none of, none of this stuff stops Trump from running, then Trump's the candidate. It's just one of those that it's like, that's the zero sum game going on. Pratik, I know what's going to happen if he can't run. What's going to happen? Kanye West is going to announce his run for presidency on the platform that he's going to free Donald Trump. And that's going to be his entire statement. I just wonder what's going to happen. I'm kind of worried. If Trump can't run, will my party even win? I don't think Republicans would win if Trump is not the candidate. And the reason is for various other reasons. You look at polling data, you look at how polls have run. Polls include everybody. They include independents, it includes moderates, it includes left-leaning Republicans, it includes moderate Republicans, it includes right-wing Republicans, it even includes people that are like not part of the election process. So in that context, if RFK, Joe Biden, and if Donald Trump all run, Trump wins. But if, um, what is it, Trump doesn't run, Joe Biden may not run, then what happens? And that's the question. That Dude, to be ask. honest with you, what I really hope we can do, you know, like deferred taxes, right? You say, yeah. oh, I'll, I'll pay this in the future. You know, don't worry about it, IRS. I, I got you at some point. Why don't we, I wish we could just do that with this election. Let's just defer it. Let's just say like, ah, four years from now, we'll have the same thing. Hopefully these people will be long gone and we can just start over with the fresh slate. And I would love that. That would be wonderful for me. What are we going to defer it until Biden dies? I mean, the dude's already on. The, no, we have an interim person. The same way that there's that. an interim. Kamala Harris the speaker becomes of the House, president, Tyler. We have someone else. Yeah. Okay. I don't Wait. care if it's a hot dog guy. I don't care who it is. We bring in someone else. Pratik, what was the name of the, the speaker of the House from uh, for the temporary one from North Carolina? Oh, Patrick McHenry. That's my guy. <laughs> That's my president. Patrick, we need you to, break that to gavel. lead the country. He's proven that he can be the guy in times of trouble to come in and make things okay. Make and I'm America comfortable with that again. guy. Patrick Maga all the way. And with that said.
we're closing out the show. So that was episode 151 of Politicana. Any final closing comments? I know we had a bunch of heavy topics. Critique, it wouldn't no. be make America great again. It would be make America wait again. That would be his <laughs> That would be his slogan. <laughs> Mawa. <laughs> Uh, with that, let's close there. That was great. Um, thank you for tuning in. Please follow, please share. Really appreciate it. And we'll catch you next week as always. Take care.